Hello, and welcome to Rejected Religion Spotlight. My guest today is Dr. Kurshi Dosu from the Julius Maximilian University of Würzburg, Germany. Kurshi is the junior team leader of the project called the Coptic Magical Papyri, Vernacular Religion in Late Roman and Early Islamic Egypt. And he's joined me today to talk about ancient magical papyri and their modern reception. Thank you for joining me today, Kurshi. Uh, thank you, Stephanie. I'm very happy to be here. Very, very nice to talk to you today. Uh, before we get started, for uh, the listeners and the viewers out there, I am dealing with a very bad case of hay fever at the moment. <laughs> so I apologize for my stuffy nose and my scratchy voice, and I hope it won't be uh, too distracting. Uh, now, Korshi, you were recently invited to the University of Amsterdam to give a lecture there. And because of that, I was also introduced to your work through my association with the HHP Center at the university. And I have to say, I was not very familiar with the topic of ancient magical papyri, as <laughs> my specialties are found more in contemporary esotericism. Uh, however, in reading the literature that you provided for me, I have to say, I find this to be quite a fascinating topic, but probably one that is not very well known in the mainstream public. Uh, so I'd like to ask if you could start by explaining what magical papyri are, where they came from, and what they were used for. Um, yeah, of course. So um, perhaps we should start with what a papyrus is. I mean, I think most people have some idea. I think um, of so, course, yeah. A, yeah. <laughs> okay, so it's a kind of paper, right, from yeah. the ancient world, uh, made with a reed which, um, which grows in Egypt and in a few other places. Um, and perhaps when most people think about papyri, they imagine, um, you know, ancient Egyptian documents like the Book of the Dead. So with the, you know, the famous drawings of Anubis weighing the heart and so on. Um, so those are very old papyri from the Pharaonic period. But um, papyrus continued to be used in Egypt until about the 10th century. So we have papyri from Egypt until about the 10th century. And throughout Moses' period, papyrus is also being used elsewhere in the Mediterranean, the Roman world. So actually... Um, there's some very nice examples of papyri from France, for example. So um, the French kings, until um, the Islamic conquest um, made Egypt unavailable, um, the French kings, for example, would import papyrus and they would write upon it. So papyrus is really just the um, the normal writing surface for much of the much of um, Europe and North Africa and so on um, for, for thousands of years, really, until it was overtaken by parchment and then paper. Um, so magical papyri, a particular type of papyri, so we have all kinds of documents written on papyri, legal documents, mathematical texts, letters, and so on. Um, but specifically, when you talk about magical papyri, we're often talking about the ones written in Greek, written in, um, and written in two forms of the Egyptian language, the two kind of latest forms, which are called Demotic and Coptic. Um, and maybe I should quickly explain that quickly as well. Um, so the Egyptian language, most people are probably familiar with hieroglyphs. Um, right, so this is how the Egyptian language is written for a lot of its history. Um, but um, over time, the hieroglyph became more and more cursive. If you're writing on papyrus with a brush, it's easier to kind of write them in more flowing strokes. Um, and so the latest form of the Egyptian language, which was used from um, the first millennium BC until about um, the latest documents we have are about the 5th century CE, 
used to written in a form called demotic, which is a bit different in terms of its grammar and looks, it's very beautiful, looks a little bit like Arabic, perhaps, if you aren't familiar with it. Um, that was then replaced by an even later stage of the Egyptian language called Coptic. So it's still the same language, just a later form. Um, and that is written primarily um, in Greek characters. They added a few extra signs um, for sounds that didn't exist in Greek. Um, and the document behind me, for example, is written in Coptic. Um, and this language is mainly used by the, um, the Christian church in Egypt, the Coptic church, um, which is where the name comes from. Um, okay, so uh, uh, let's get back to the magical papyri. Uh, so around the first century BC, um, we start finding these documents um, written in Greek, but also written a little bit in Demotic and um, a bit in Coptic, um, which contain um, what scholars from the 19th century onwards started calling magical texts. Um, of course, we get, you know, ancient Egyptian magical texts. Um, we get, you know, magical texts from Babylonia and so on. Um, but the ones that we start to find around the first century BC, and these continue being written in Greek in Egypt until about the, let's say, the seventh century in Greek. Um, and we have even later ones in Coptic until about the twelfth uh, century. Although they're actually not written on papyrus anymore, they're written on paper. But we still call them papyri because uh, papyrologists are strange like that. Um, <laughs> Uh, so these documents are perhaps more similar to w- what your listeners might know as the kind of Western magical tradition, the kind of tradition of ceremonial magic. Um, so you have things like, um, you know, invocations of, of deities, similar to later invocations of angels and demons to kind of appear and answer questions or serve as familiar spirits. Um, you have um, love spells. Um, so um, spells to force um, a man or a woman, but usually a woman to kind of come to you and, um, do whatever you want, let them do whatever you want to to them. Um, you have curses, which are meant to kind of make people sick or destroy them. Um, you have um, amulets. Um, so we have uh, a lot of documents that are meant to kind of help you, they give you instructions for carrying out these rituals. So it's similar to the grimoires, for example, that you find in the medieval tradition, um, often very similar. We sometimes even find kind of... Um, uh, echoes of the same rituals in the medieval tradition um, in Latin and Greek and Arabic and so on. So these med- languages are used for magic in the Middle Ages. Um, but we also find what um, I and others um, who work in this call um, applied texts. These are texts which are actually produced by these rituals. And these are things like amulets or curses, which have specific people's names written on them. Um, and then, you know, if it's an amulet, you wear it um, to protect you. If it's a curse, you bury it somewhere. Um, and these documents started appearing at the same time as other papyri started appearing. So um, in the 19th century, sorry if I'm going into too much detail, but in the 19th century, um, Egypt kind of underwent a bit of a revolution. Um, it started um, industrializing under the reign of Muhammad Ali. Um, Europeans started becoming more involved in Egypt. And these two things um, end up producing the antiquities trade, of which the papyrus trade was part. Um, so with the kind of expansion of agriculture in Egypt into marginal land, um, you often had um, Egyptian farmers going into the remains of ancient sites. And as they were digging for fertilizer, they would often find papyri and they'd find their way to the European market. Um, but also because there were a lot of lot more Europeans who had a lot of money and were becoming increasingly interested in um, ancient artifacts, including papyri, um, a lot of Egyptians actually decided to themselves they would go out you know, to tombs and temples. They knew where these places were. Um, there had been, in some extent, a treasure hunting um, profession for centuries by that period. 
Um, so they, so actually, the majority of the very nice examples of magical power we have come from that kind of context of Egyptians going out to tombs and temples primarily or other ancient sites, finding documents perhaps in jars or in boxes where they've been stored for hundreds or thousands of years, um, and then through a series of middlemen selling them to people, selling uh, them to Europeans, and they would then find their way into European or American or even um, Australasian collections. Um, of course, there are still papyri being found in Egypt today, including magical papyri, um, through excavation. But the majority of the large and famous ones um, are kind of found through this more informal process of these illicit um, these illicit finds. Um, I mean, we have some very interesting cases of magical papyri being found um, in controlled excavations in various parts of Egypt, um, but that's generally the exception. Um, so I hope that's an okay introduction to the documents. Yes. Perhaps you could let me know if there's anything that I've missed out. No, not at all. Thank you for explaining that. Uh, that that puts it in a, a better context, so so people understand how how Europeans came to know about uh, these these uh, papyri and these texts. Um, yeah. How would people in in the in the time itself? How would people obtain these magical texts? I mean, was this something that was common and out in the open, so to speak, or was there a certain amount of secrecy involved? Um, so, uh, to be honest, when we study these these documents, there's a huge number of unanswered questions, um, and even yeah. when we have answers or we can propose answers, they're often very controversial. Um, so, I think this is even the case for you know the Middle Ages, where we have a lot more information. You know, occasionally for the Middle Ages, we even have the names of copyists and owners, um, and yet we still, I don't think, have the full picture. Um, and it's even more serious um, for the ancient world. Um, the, the, the texts that we're looking at, um, if they're applied texts, they might have personal names. If they are lists of recipes, what I call formularies, they typically don't have any information about their owner. Um, so um, we have to kind of do a lot of guesswork, really. Um, in terms of uh, what we can perhaps reconstruct based on looking at the papyri and based on baits, uh, sorry, based on looking at literary evidence. Um, we think that generally it was something fairly secretive um, to some extent. So um, in the papyri themselves, there's a discourse of secrecy, you know, do not tell anybody else about this, do not share it with anyone. Um, but of course, as your listeners might know, this is a very popular trope in kind of occult literature generally, right? Like there's a kind of trope of secrecy, uh, yes. which makes something seem more attractive. Um, so that is to say that perhaps all people might have known about these kinds of practices and known who to go to and maybe even been able, I mean, there may have been some kind of market in these books. It's a bit hard to say. I mean, we actually don't know a huge amount about the book market and antiquity in general. Um, so there may have been some kind of trade, for example. Um, but generally speaking, when we find these mentioned, it seems to be in somewhat secretive contexts. Um, so, for example, um, there are literary stories um, of people having magical books but hiding them. Um, I should probably say that a lot of the information, the kind of rich information we have, comes from a period in which the Roman Empire is becoming Christian. Um, and so uh, there is, this is a kind of a complex, once again, a complex academic um, or debate within academia about the legal status of magic within the Roman Empire. Um, but there were some Roman laws against um what what came to be called magic from quite early on, so from the Republican period, um, but especially, um, you know, in the early centuries of our era, um, which is more or less when Egypt was becoming part of the Roman Empire, um, there was increasing, um, there were an increasing number of laws which could be used to control practitioners of magic. Um, so early on, it focused on things like um, curses, 
um, which were referred to often by the same, uh, using the same terminology as poisoning. So poisoning and cursing were often not distinguished and that was illegal. Um, divination was often considered illicit um, and not only magical divination by summoning you know, spirits, but also astrology because um, it was seen perhaps as something which could threaten an emperor, for example, um, if an emperor was uh, foretold to be overthrown, then this could be seen as perhaps an inciting a revolt or encouraging a revolt. Um, and then from around the third century onwards, we get very explicit laws against any kind of magic, so any kind of magical practices. Um, by the time of Constantine, this includes this includes explicitly healing practices. Um, so that so the kind of legal status of magic is one reason why people might have been secretive. Um, but there's a discourse of secrecy earlier than that. It's not something that shows up in documentary texts very often, for example. So when we read letters, people don't generally talk about magic. There are hundreds and thousands of letters preserved um, from the ancient world. Very, very, very few of them mention anything which we could talk about, we could consider close to magic. So it seems that there's some kind of um, perhaps taboo about discussing it openly. Um, and there's an inter interesting um, case um, of similar things being observed in modern Ethiopia. Um, there's a, an anthropologist, a French anthropologist called Sienna de Menonville, who studied this in Ethiopia, and who mentions that there's a case in modern Ethiopia of everybody knowing about magic, knowing that it's practiced, knowing the kinds of practices that take place, knowing who to go to, um, but not really being comfortable discussing it in, um, in public. And I get the impression that something similar may have been the case in the ancient world, in late antiquity. Um, so where we do encounter it, it's usually kind of in, um, in hagiographical stories or very lurid um, fictional stories so that's kind of a safe place to discuss magic mm -hmm. um, whereas and that makes it a bit difficult for us as historians to get a sense of its real position in everyday life I see uh, this is a very tricky area regardless that when you're talking about magic it's not a mm, cut and dry yeah. thing so uh, my next question is maybe a bit mean <laughs> for you, uh, but uh, because I do understand the, the complexity of the topic of magic. Uh, but if you could talk a little bit about uh, your, uh, your findings, your research findings, uh, in, as to how ancient people thought about magic. Uh, is, is this concept of magic that that was understood in ancient times the same as we might understand it today in popular culture, for example? Um, I mean, this is a really difficult question. I think that it would depend. I think every scholar of ancient magic who you ask would probably answer it a bit differently. Mm. Um, so I should probably say that my answer is very much my answer and right. um, other people may disagree very strongly with understood. me. <laughs> um, to be honest, I, I find this very hard to, to answer, I suppose, um, even putting that aside, because I, I've been working on this material for so long that I, I feel like I don't, I, I can't really separate my understanding of magic from what these texts are. And so I'm always kind of fascinated when I talk to people who don't really know this material as well as I do, what do they think of as magic, you know? Um, so I suppose... Um, there's lots of ways to answer this question. I'll maybe come to another one. One way, one thing that struck me recently is that um, I think in kind of modern discourse, so there's maybe something that um, goes back to the 19th century, people like the Golden Dawn. I think magic is very much a kind of, um, well, perhaps there's two things I could say about modern conceptions of magic. One is coming from Fraser, and obviously it's a bit older than that, but Fraser is the one who popularized it, is the idea of magical as kind of, magic as mechanical, right? Right. Um, so it's a kind of uh, force of nature, which is kind of in some way hidden, but which can be manipulated. 
Um, and I think you see this in kind of modern fiction in terms of, um, you know, magic as kind of a science which can be discovered and then mastered. Mm. Um, and I think this, obviously you can link that back to, you know, like Renaissance natural magic. Um, and there are some examples of the magical empire. So maybe that's one concept of magic that we can identify in modern world, so magic is a force. Um, another thing which I've noticed in modern discourses of magic is um, magic is kind of self-empowerment. Um, it's the idea that by becoming a, mission, a magician, you self-actualize and you become, you have this tremendous force inside yourself that you can then use to um, change the world around you. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the definitions of magic used by modern practitioners, if I'm not mistaken, coming from Crowley, the idea that magic is about affecting change in the world. Yes, yes. Um, so my impression is if we could kind of compare that to ancient magic, it, magic in the sense that we encounter it in magical papyri, and leaving aside the question of whether people in the ancient world would call it magic, that's a slightly different yeah. question. <laughs> but ancient magic um, is very much, um, to me at least, relational. So it's not about I am a very powerful person manipulating forces. Rather, it's about I know the right way in which to petition this higher being in order for that being to help me and to arrange the forces of nature in a slightly different way. So it's less about the individual affecting change, I would say, and more about um, the individual within this kind of network of relationships. And that way, it's very similar to um, the way in which people would have experienced um, their social world. So if there's something you need, you go to a powerful person, you um, explain the problem that you have, you explain the reason that you need their help and that they should help you. You'd say, well, for example, I'm your client, I've done X and Y for you. Um, you use special um, linguistic formulae. So you might say, oh, I call upon, I invoke you to do this by, um, you know, by Zeus, the God who protects, um, protects uh, travelers, or I call upon you by the, by the um, uh, merciful Virgin Mary. Um, in a Christian context, and you find similar kinds of language in the magical text. So they say, I call upon you by so-and-so, but often the thing you're calling upon is something more kind of esoteric and strange, and it's kind of secret knowledge, which gives you special access to this higher power. Um, so that's just one thing I've been reflecting on recently, this kind of relationality of magic, and it being, about, it being very much personal, as opposed to this kind of very individualistic um, and very kind of... Um, mechanical sense of magic that we often have um in the in the modern world um apart from that i think that i mean so when we talk about magic in the ancient world emic concepts of magic there's this kind of range of terms you know we have magia which is where the, the word magic comes from it comes from magike techne so magical um uh technique or magical art something like that um there's other terms like goetia. This was an older term, which originally was to do with um, practices relating to the dead. It may have originally meant something like um, songs uh, spoken to the dead, but but quite quickly by the time of the classical period, it becomes about um, invoking the dead, for example, uh, for curses or for necromancy. Um, this is a concept which is quite similar to Magia. So Magia was often considered a kind of newer word which replaced goetia, um, but it was much more negatively charged. So in some of the magical papyri, they do describe themselves as practicing Magia. They do describe their own practice of Magia, but they never describe their own practice as Goetea. And so Goetea is more of kind of an outsider term, which is which in vernacular languages of Europe is often translated as black magic. Um, so my impression is that Magia kind of referred to this kind of range of techniques which were associated with kind of secret knowledge and um, in particular, Eastern priests. So the term literally means something like the art of the Magoi, 
sort of the art of these um, these Persian or more broadly um, Mesopotamian priests. Um, and and Magos is actually sometimes extended to Egyptian priests as well. So I guess ma- magic in the ancient world have kind of referred to a range of secret techniques which wise men of the past and of the East um, had taught um, and which could be found in certain books. Um, but there's also this kind of more... Um, pejorative sense of, ma- of, of magic. So Ed, basically anybody who's doing anything which seems kind of, um, anybody who's showing kind of surprising power um, could be called um, a magician. And this could then be used as a kind of negative characterization of them. So this is a very common trope um, with kind of miracle workers like Apollonius of Tyana or Jesus. Um, there's extensive discourse in light antiquity of these people being called magoi. Um, and the interesting thing is that people in the ancient world were aware of this. So a very common trope in Christian hagiographies is that you have the saint who's performing miracles. Um, he gets called before the governor and the governor says, you're a magician. And the saint says, oh, I'm not really a magician. I'm doing this through the power of God. And then they have to come up with some kind of theory of what the, what the difference between magic and miracle is. So this is a really fascinating. I mean, I find this really fascinating that you have yeah. this kind of um, reflexive discourse in these hagiographies, you know, very, very early on. Um, but people yeah, so were again, aware of this. Yeah, yeah. So I think yeah. it shows they were very much aware of this kind of discursive yeah. use of magic. Mm. Um, but at the same time, the Christian um, the Christian position is not to deny that magic existed. It's to try to construct a clear differentiation uh, between their practices and magic. I see. My platform uh, pays a lot of attention to how Uh, esoteric thought, even ancient thought, can be filtered through through history and how it is received in a contemporary, uh, I guess, jacket, if you want to, if you want to say the the term that I like to use for that is a culture. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was reading your uh, texts about amulets, uh, about uh, spells, love spells, uh, I'm I'm calling it spells, but um, I'm thinking, and I don't know if I'm making the association a, a proper association, but I'm wondering if these types of ideas have kind of filtered through all the the centuries, and we see things like that today in our contemporary ideas of what magic could be uh, in uh, things that we we see read and hear about voodoo or new age uh um, new age practices that you you know you you're you're using special oils or you're using special crystals or you're using something that is helping you to gain something that you desire whatever this may be and different systems are using different practices for that but it seems like there's some kind of connection there am i making a erroneous connection or do you think that there might be something behind that way of thinking um so kind of once again the answer that you you get is going to depend on who you ask <laughs> okay <laughs> um, your so, opinion <laughs> yeah so i mean uh, the way um, the, so i'm saying that to kind of set up the point so i think yeah. um as you know there's been a big move away from the term magic in, in academia so yeah. this is if you if you i don't know if you've interviewed bernd christian otto or if you know his work mm, yes. he talks about the self or the magie um, so the idea that um, there's the concept of magic went through this collapse um, in, I think, the I mean, almost immediately after Fraser starts using it, you have anthropologists criticizing it. Yeah. But I think particularly between the 60s and the 80s, 
um, is when kind of um, people working on ancient magic kind of absorbed this idea. So um, one way in which they've reacted to this is to try to avoid big narratives which link ancient magic to the present and even really avoid the concept of using the concept of magic in a larger way. So really when they, when scholars of ancient magic talk about magic, very often they're really just talking about magical pari or defixiones um, and there's kind of a resistance to um, to linking it to later periods because that the more you do that, the more the concept of magic becomes important. But this is something which I disagree with. So okay. <laughs> um, perhaps I can respond to it a little bit. I think that um, it, my impression is there is really a continuity between these practices and our modern conception of magic. Um, and we can see this in things like vocabulary. So, for example, one term you use for um, uh, a love spell, particularly a love spell you give someone in the form of a, a drink, is uh, filtron in the magical papyri. And, of course, this becomes filter um, with a PH. Um, and this is a term very commonly used um, for magical uh, drinks, magic potions throughout the Middle Ages. I mean, it's a bit, I don't think people really talk about it now. I suspect you may find it in Harry Potter. So it's like the archaic word, but until very recently it was used. And so there are lots of continuities in terms of um, the language used um, and even in terms of practice. So, you know, you have names like abracadabra, which um, we can link to abrasax, for example, which is a very common name in these ancient texts. Um, so I think there's a real continuity. Of course, there's a lot of changes. So the huge amount of transformation of these practices that goes on as they're transferred through time and um, through different places. Um, so I do think there is continuity. Um, I think that we, of course, have to be careful that we, or at least I as a scholar, <laughs> uh, want to be careful um, to not perhaps um, fall into this kind of um, Frazerian trap of assuming that magic is just kind of something that the human brain automatically does. Um, or if you do assume that, perhaps you have to have a slightly different definition of magic. And um, perhaps it's something broader um, or even something narrower than what I, I'm talking about here, which is these, this kind of specific range of practices. Um, but the voodoo doll is actually a very interesting example because um, I don't know if you've seen, but you have lots of very interesting examples from the ancient world, from, from ancient Egypt and even older. Um, there's a very famous example. If you Google um, Louvre, so the Louvre in France, um, voodoo doll, um, you'll see a very interesting case of um, a woman who can be, a, um, we can kind of identify the rough period she's from based on her hairstyle, which is very kind of characteristic. You know, Romans had a very, uh, very kind of um, predictable patterns of fashion. So by comparing it to um, statues, you can kind of get a sense where it's from. Um, and she's basically stabbed with um, a number of nails in various parts of her body. So her eyes, her brain, um, her genitals, her heart. Um, and this is a very interesting object because we can connect it to a text which talks about how by stabbing her in these particular places, you're controlling the function of these organs and you're basically preventing her from thinking about um, or having sexual intercourse with um, other people. Um, uh, you also find things like um, these figurines um, who are tied up or who are placed in um, placed in miniature coffins and then buried often with texts or just on their own. Um, you also find the practice of melting um, these dolls. So we find, I mean, obviously we don't have any examples if they're melted, <laughs> um, but in texts they describe, you know, if they're made of wax, you melt them or you might burn them in a fire. Um, and what's interesting is that, I mean, it, if you ask someone how a voodoo doll works nowadays, they'll say that you make a figure of someone, you stick a bit of hair in it, and you stab it and they feel pain in that body part. Um, but that's not necessarily how the voodoo doll was traditionally thought to work, right? Um, it was more about, and so first of all, putting the hair in, in the doll, this is something which does definitely come from 
um, these ancient magical apari that it's called so you very often take something which is connected to the person so a bit of a hair or a fingernail a bit of their clothing and the term used in greek is usia which means something like um, stuff or essence or something like that um so um yeah, so, so what, I, what I was getting at was these kind of manipulations of these dolls, so stabbing them with nails, burning them, um, putting them in coffins. These are actually tested in um, uh, hoodoo practice, right? So Zora Neale Hurston, when she's writing about her investigation of, um, of hoodoo rituals, I think in the 1920s, she actually mentioned each of these specifically. Um, she wasn't meant, she wasn't reading the magical papyri, um, as far as I know, so it's unlikely that she, inv- I know that she was a little bit creative in her fieldwork. Um, but I don't think that she um, she, she was inventing these whole, uh, from whole cloth. Um, uh, and so you have a very interesting parallel. And actually, you can then join further dots. Um, so particularly in the 19th century, there are a lot of um, anthropological and folkloric accounts of people in various parts of Europe who are using dolls in very similar ways. If you go a bit further back into the Middle Ages, you can find accounts, um, you know, people who are being accused of witchcraft or even in um in books of magic, so grimoires, you can find descriptions. So basically, you can actually trace an almost continuous line um, between the magical papyri and the use of what we now call voodoo dolls um, between, you know, antiquity and the present. And you can even go further back to examples from ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt. So, I mean, what I've just done is perhaps something which might, some scholars might consider a bit controversial, you know, creating this link. But in my opinion, you can really see the steps almost every um, part of the way. But then this raises interesting um, problem of why we call them voodoo dolls, because they're not really, uh, you know, they're not. There's actually not really any meaningful connection to Haitian voodoo. Um, there's maybe a little bit of a connection to um, voodoo in a slightly older sense. So voodoo was um, kind of one of the terms used in the Americas for um, African American um, folk magic. So what's often called the conjuring tradition, or more often nowadays hoodoo. Mm-hmm. Um, my impression, I did a little bit of um, work on this for an article, which isn't out yet. Um, the, the kind of the term voodoo doll seems to have started to be used around the time of the U.S. occupation of Haiti. Um, so it seems at this time there's kind of a, an obsession in the U.S. with Haiti and with voodoo. And with this also when like zombies, for example, start appearing in American literature. Um, so my impression is that around the same time, probably in the decades preceding it, this is when there's a rise in interest in folklore. You have people like Fraser. Um, and even Sigmund Freud talking about the voodoo doll, but not calling it a voodoo doll. They can't talk about these figures which are stabbed with nails and they connect it to, for example, Scotland or Hungary or German peasants. And my impression is that um, for whatever reason in America in the late teens and early 20s, um, this kind of interest in Haiti and the concept of this doll, which is kind of a prim- thought of as a primitive artifact, got linked together to create this concept of the of the voodoo doll, even though it's a practice which is very long, has very long attestation in Europe um, and North Africa, um, used by people who are Christians or Muslims and, um, you know, people we now call pagans. Um, so that's one practice which is very specific and can perhaps be, um, be traced for quite a long period of time. Um, there are perhaps others that we could talk about, but we don't really have time for that, I imagine. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, explaining that. I mean, I think that's really uh, an interesting uh, link uh, d- to be made uh, with that. I mean, I, I'm I'm expanding my own knowledge base here as, as I'm uh, listening to you talk about this. So thank you for sharing that. I find this to, to be very interesting. And also, 
that you mentioned Harry Potter. I mean, I wasn't even thinking of that when I asked the question. But yeah, I mean, this this concept that that people, uh, not not scholars, but just the the layperson has about yeah. magic. It's very interesting how these these ideas travel through through throughout history. So, mm -hmm. uh, if we stay with uh, the modern times. Um, in your dissertation called Rituals of Apparition in the Theban Magical Library, you discuss that a collection of magical papyri known as the Theban Magical Library was dispersed throughout Europe and Great Britain at the end of the 19th century. And you mentioned that before when you were talking about how Europeans came to know of these, of these uh, texts. Um, members of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, you mentioned them as well, were very interested in these texts, especially the Egypt, Egyptian ones. E Egypt was very in vogue in, in, at that time. One of the members of the Golden Dawn used part of that text, uh, taken from one of the papyri, that is, to create a ritual known as the Headless God or the Bornless Rite. Uh, it's called one or the other. Uh, could you talk more about this ritual and how it became so well-known and widely dispersed in the occult community? And it's still even being talked about today. Yeah, so I mean, I, once again, I should preface this by saying um, that I'm not really an expert on this modern magic. It's just something which I'm interested in, which I've encountered um, in my work on the magical papyri. Um, yeah, so the magical library, kind of all, most of the big famous magical papyri, which people may have encountered if they've read them, do come from this single collection, which is quite interesting in itself. Um, these were the first ones, I think, to arrive in Europe. Uh, yeah, they were the first ones to arrive in Europe, um, although not all at once. They were, they were kind of dispersed in a series of sales. Um, so there's a group in Leiden um, in the Netherlands, actually not too far from Amsterdam, um, which were published quite early, but not completely. There were little parts published in an open letter by um, by Kaspar Ruivens, who was the curator of the museum there. Um, but then the first one to be published in full translation was um, uh, a, a codex, so like a modern style book written in papyrus, um, which was bought by the British Museum, I think, in 1940, sorry, 1846. Um, this is one which is now called PGM5. Um, and this is one which contained the ritual called, um, which, well, it's basically, it calls upon a god called the Headless God, the Akephalos. Um, and it's kind of a general ritual asking for um, for protection. I should probably give the exact, um, yes, it's PGM5, 96 to 172, if anybody wants to look it up. Um, the text itself is called the Stela of Yeo. Um, in in its in its text, um, we don't really know what that means. Um, very often, these um, magical texts describe themselves as um, not very often, but sometimes describe themselves as stelae. Um, so, if you think about like the um, the Hermetic tradition, right, the kind of ancient Greek Hermetica, there's kind of a fiction within these texts. They were written on stelae in Egyptian by um, Hermes Trismegistus in the ancient past. It seems to be something similar going on here. This is a text which claims that it was a stela written by somebody called Yeo. Um, he's called the Zoographos um, in the text, which means painter. Um, in the um, translation by Hans Dieter Betz, they translate it as hieroglyphist, but that's not really the term that we use for hieroglyphist. So it really means the painter. We don't have any idea who Yeo is. Um, it's quite similar to Yao, um, so the name of the Hebrew god um, in Greek. Um, and we actually find variations in Gnostic literatures that maybe this was thought to have been written by, you know, God himself. Um, but it's basically an invocation of a being called the Headless One, the Headless God. Um, 
It has some features which um, are attempting to make it um, kind of Jewish in terms of its content. So the speaker identifies himself as Moses, for example. Um, so this is quite something quite common in the magical empire that you identify yourself with various figures of the past or deities in order to claim power. Um, and it's kind of asking for protection. It's asking for all the demons around, um, in the area around you to be subject to you. Um, so it's kind of uh, for protection against demons um, and so on. Um, so, uh, yeah, as you were saying, so within this order, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and actually, I guess, um, you know, magic more generally in the 19th century, there was an interest in um, in ancient cultures and in the kind of East, of course, so in in India, in ancient Jewish traditions, um, and also in, with Egypt. So Egypt had, had, very, had for a very long time been famous as kind of the home of magic. Um, and we find this even in the Greek magical papyri, even though they're from Egypt, they often use this trope of Egypt as a source of knowledge. Um, but the problem was that um, although um, in the 19th century hieroglyphs had been decoded by, um, by Champollion um, and people were starting to publish um, Egyptian texts, they weren't really publishing anything that was really magic as Westerners would have thought about it, right? Um, if you read the Book of the Dead, um, Egyptologists often call the individual text spells, um, which is I think it's a little bit anachronistic because really the word is just something like formula um, or chapter. Um, doesn't necessarily have the same, you know, uh, nuances as spell. Um, but the Book of the Dead is, is basically a series of rituals for a dead person to allow them to get to the next, like to the uh, to a happy afterlife. Um, it does involve some things, like for example, transformations, transforming yourself into various animals, um, uh, triumphing over your enemies, for example. Um, so, in some ways, it corresponds to a modern idea of magic, but not necessarily close, very closely. You know, our idea of magic is things like divination, love spells, curses. Um, and the Book of the Dead doesn't really give you a very clear example of that. Um, but nonetheless, some of these 19th century occultists were trying to use and adapt um, aspects of the Book of the Dead um, as um, as magical rituals. But into this world, we then have the appearance of the Greek magical papyri. And so the first one was published actually in English, this one, PGM5. It was published in English in... It was published in 1852. So it meant that basically from 1852, you then all of a sudden had this Greek magical papyrus available in English translation. Um, and the translator, Charles, Charles Wycliffe Goodwin, um, called it a Greco-Egyptian work upon magic. So he did specifically emphasize the Egyptian side of it, even though it was written in Greek. Um, and he also speculated that it was um, written by or owned by a priest of Isis or Serapis. Um, so these kind of Greco-Egyptian or Egyptian deities. Uh, a passage from this was used in, um, was then taken, and actually this specific passage, the Stella of Yale, um, was actually used in a passage um, a passage of it was quoted um, in a work by Wallace Budge, um, who was an early Egyptologist. Um, he published a, a section of it in a book called Egyptian Magic. So my impression is that, you know, people in the 19th century are interested in Egyptian magic. They want to try to figure out what it was. They find out that this famous Egyptologist, Wallace Budge, Wallace Budge has published a book called Egyptian Magic. And then you have this really interesting, something that looks probably closer to what they imagine magic to be, this text, the book of the Stela of Yao. Um, and he, of course, references the original edition, um, which has an English translation, which makes it easier to use. Um, and so it seems that, um, I think, um, in the 1890s, I'll have to double check this, Egyptian Magic is published in 1901. Um, so I guess it was in the early 20th century rather than late, yeah. So it's in the 1900s, basically, the early 1900s, um, the members of the Golden Dawn begin experimenting with adapt, incorporating this into their ritual practice. Um, so, for example, Alan Bennett, um, who I think was... Um, uh, Alistair Crowley's mentor um, within the Golden Dawn 
Um, and it seems that other people, so for example, Florence Farr, were using it. Um, uh, and then it becomes incorporated. This text is, is used um, by the Golden Dawn in various different rituals. They use parts of it, sections from it. Um, but then the whole thing is then published in, um, in McGregor Mather's translation of the Goetia. Um, and there's a bit of disagreement about whose decision it was to put it there. I think Crowley claimed it was his own. Um, but one specific change that happens is that, um, uh, well, the text has an interesting history and there's various changes that get made to it over time. One of the first changes that um, I think either Crowley or Mathers make is to change the bornless, sorry, the headless god into the bornless god. Um, now, in Greek, akephalos means headless, um, and it's quite clear that it refers to a being without a head, although it's not quite clear what that means theologically. Um, but the, uh, the members of the Golden Dawn, they had smatterings of various ancient languages, um, and they knew that in Hebrew, the word resh meant head, and apparently it also means beginning. And so they decided that they could do the same thing in Greek. So they see a god without a head doesn't really make much sense. But a god without beginning makes a lot of sense. And so one of the first things I think you see in the edition that you find in the Guitia is they say, not I invoke you the headless one, which is the original translation um, by, um, by Goodwin. They change it to I invoke you the bornless one. Um, so the one who was never born. Um, and then this becomes, I think, one of um, Crowley's favorite rituals. Um, so first of all, it's in the Guitia. So this is a, one of the very popular texts in Western esotericism. Um, but Crowley himself uses it very often. Um, so, um, let's see, I'll just try to, so for example, um, the book of the law, he received this after receiving, um, uh, a summons when he was in the great pyramids, he was performing a ritual for his wife and he was called to go to the Bulak museum. And this is where he sees the stila, which then becomes the inspiration for the book of the law. The ritual that he was practicing in the great pyramid was actually the bornless, right? Um, so the, so it plays quite an important role, um, in, I guess, the creation of, of Thelema. Um, and then in his retirements, that he various retirements that he went on, he continued to use it. Um, he also continued to adapt it. Um, so, for example, I said earlier on that in the text um, you identify yourself as um, Moses. Um, he decided he didn't really like this. He didn't like this kind of Jewish aspect in it. He wanted it to be more Egyptian. Um, so he changed the name Moses um, to Anchefen Kons, um, who is the name of the guy to whom the Stila of Revelation belonged. Um, so it became very popular um, in Crowley's own practice, but then it had another, it had perhaps a side, um, uh, a side reception, we can say, um, through Israel Regardi. So, so Crowley's secretary, Israel Regardi, started publishing a lot of the Golden Dawn materials. Um, one of the interesting things that he did was when he was publishing The Bornless Rite, he went back actually to the original translation um, by Goodwin. Um, and so my, I think that in, uh, which, which book is it that he originally publishes it in? A tree of life. I think it's a tree of life, and then in ceremonial magic, um, uh, that he that he talks about these things, and he specifically actually makes the decision to go back to the original text of Goodwin. So he decides to kind of restore this original text, even though he thinks that Crowley's interpretation is maybe correct, but he still prefers the kind of more authentic translation. And this is perhaps what's something which I've noticed in the reception of these texts. Um, I think the kinds of um, modern occultists who are interested in ancient, ancient texts are also interested in kind of getting back to a more authentic uh, version of these texts. Um, and we can perhaps contrast that with a more kind of interpretive or, um, I guess, self-directed tradition of magic that you see, for example, in, in chaos magic traditions. And maybe, what, maybe you can see a, um, an early... Uh, an early sign of that kind of practice when, you know, you see Crowley changing the text, 
um, according to how he thinks it should actually be interpreted. Um, uh, and so, for example, there's um, more modern grimoires, um, like the Book of Abersacks by uh, Michael Cecatelli, um, or Cecatelli, sorry. Um, there's John from the Stratton Kent wrote a, a whole pamphlet kind of giving this history, which is one of the first places that I encountered it called the Headless One. Um, and um, I think there's another one, a third one. Um, oh yeah, there's a book by um, Damien Licarinos, um, uh, which taught, or a collected volume, which also has a translation of it. Um, and actually Damien Licarinos is somebody who has done a thesis on uh, modern magicians. And I, I, although I haven't read this book, he may have something interesting to say about this. Um, mm. So as we've seen this kind of attempt to go back to original versions, this attempt to kind of constantly go back to scholarship. Um, so in the 1980s, um, we have a big English, the first um, major English translation of Magical Apari led by Hans Dieter Betts at the University of Chicago. Um, and from that point on, this kind of becomes the main reference point um, for modern magicians. So the version they're using now, generally speaking, if they're, if they're including the Stila of Yao, um, they're calling it, uh, they're, they're using actually the version from Betts, not the version published by Israel Regardi or the version published by um, Crowley or the version um, from the original publication by Goodwin, they're actually using the Betts one. Um, uh, and often they'll kind of talk about this history and the fact that, you know, Alistair Crowley interpreted it as um, the bornless God and it's actually the headless God. This becomes part of, you know, a way to assert your knowledge of the text. Um, in the discourse, you can say, well, Crowley called it this, and it's often well known to this, but its real name, um, you know, going back to the original sources, um, uh, is the headless god. Um, and yeah, I, I think, I suppose um, the fact that the Betts volume is now available in English, I think you can even find it for free on the internet if you know where to look. Um, this means that now there's a huge number of ancient magical texts available to, to, to modern practitioners. And so I think there's my impression, although I, I, once again, I don't really study this in detail. My impression is there's perhaps less of a focus on the bornless right and more of a, a kind of ex exploration of the various range of practices. Um, and the Betts PGM is actually very, Greek Magical Party is very helpful um, in this regard because it gives a lot of footnotes. It gives a lot of explanatory footnotes, which really give you a sense of understanding the text as you go through it. Um, as someone who works on these, I think the footnotes are often wrong. Uh, and the translations, to be honest, are often wrong. <laughs> um, but I mean, they're not, you know, they're not terrible. They're, they're good translations and they're good footnotes. It's just that I, I often interpret it in a different way and other scholars may as well. Um, but you can see there's an interesting way in which the modern reception has kind of followed the specific book. Um, and so one thing I noticed recently is um, uh, there's a modern there's a practitioner who has a blog in which they talk about um, their, um, their use of the PGM and their attempt to adapt the PGM into modern practices. Um, of course, the, the Greek Magical Papyri have a lot of assumed knowledge, which we've lost. And so modern practitioners have to put a lot into it. So often they add things like mudras or they add in kind of other things which come from, you know, more modern ceremonial magic, which are probably a bit alien, to be honest, and which are none, nonetheless necessary to kind of fill out the gaps. Um, uh, but one thing I've noticed this practitioner does, um, so, so actually a German-speaking practitioner, practitioner based in Germany, he could be using the original um, translation of the Greek Magical Papyri, which is in German by um, Karl Preisendanz and his collaborators, which has facing Greek text. Um, but instead, it's quite clear um, when you look at his blog that he's actually using the English Betts edition um, because it's much more accessible. Um, and you can see that in the specific translation choices that he uses, but also in the way that he interprets the texts. Um, so, yeah, this is a huge subject that I think a lot more work needs to be done on. Um, but I suppose what's interesting to me as somebody who works on texts and on textual um, transmission and reception um, is the way in which um, the kind of modern reception has been so much conditioned by um, scholarship and what's happening in scholarship. 
and the production specifically of translations um, in English, and then people constantly um, playing with them on the one hand and adapting them in their own way, but then very often going back to the, not the original text, but the text in translation and trying to kind of get back something more authentic. It's kind of interesting tension, which I see in this material. This is very fascinating to me. I, I wanted to ask you about this. I was not aware that the original inspiration for the creation of this uh, uh, rite by the Golden Dawn uh, was this coming from the Theban Magical Library. I wasn't aware of that connection. Oh, okay, but, but you knew of the ritual, did you? Yes, because <laughs> uh, <laughs> last year I was uh, uh, I was talking about this in a podcast episode that I did with two of my colleagues. We were watching a show called Hellier. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, no, it's, a, it's an American, uh, I guess, you, I guess you could call it a documentary type uh, uh, series. Uh, it, it was of a uh, paranormal uh, group that was following uh, events of high strangeness in the cave systems in Kentucky in the United States. Wow! And related to that was... Uh, another podcast called Penny Royal. It was a, a separate podcast with a separate creator, uh, but these these the 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 teams of these of, of Hellier and of Penny Royal met each other and realized that they were kind of talking about similar things. Well, in uh, in the in the course of uh, of discovery for for this paranormal team, they came across a man who. Uh, was also involved in uh, writing about uh, events of high strangeness. And this person introduced this, uh, this book that they had written uh, with, a, with a, an account made by a person. We're not quite certain if this person is a real person or if this is an imagined person, but in the book it is put forth as if this is a real person. We don't know if it's fiction or not. Um, but this person was saying that they had to use the bornless right uh, to protect themselves against aliens. So huh. we get alien wow. ufology with a, mixed with a high strangeness, and and all of these things, yeah, kind of develop out of out of uh, out of this quest that this paranormal team has wow. to try to come, uh, yeah, to try to find out what what's going on with all of these strange events. And it, That's we, really interesting. my my yeah, my colleagues and I were. We're very, uh, very intrigued by this program, and we started talking about it. But yeah, that came up, and I had no idea that this had its origin in an uh, Egyptian magical papyri. So yeah, it's really interesting how things come full circle sometimes, yeah, where you yeah. where you realize things like that. So that's one, one interesting thing I could add, perhaps there is yeah. that. Um, so a lot of the rituals that the my understanding is a lot of the rituals of the golden dawn early on were kind of about invoking deities right right which is something you find a lot of in the in the greek magical papyri but they didn't but budge didn't include one in his book egyptian magic and so the golden dawn didn't actually use one and so they were using this ritual which was actually for protection against demons to invoke um to invoke um well actually it's a little bit vague but that's what it's probably for but there's not a lot of non-specific language but they were using it to invoke deities still right because that was one of their main practices right um but part of this kind of um archaizing tendency has been to return to the original purpose and say well actually this is not a an invocatory ritual or an evocatory ritual it's actually a protective ritual so that shows that the person that you again this person who was just protecting themselves from aliens 
was actually in some ways using it in a more authentic way than Crowley. <laughs> right. Uh, funnily enough. Yeah. Um, that... So they obviously knew about this original purpose and yeah. used it in that way. Yeah. I just find this all very interesting stuff. And, yeah, yeah. And how, yeah, how scholarship is actually very important in all of this uh, to, to really understand what it is that you're talking about, what you're working with. Yeah. So, and another example of how scholarship can be very relevant. Uh, you've re- recently been featured on a podcast called Appalachian Mysteria, which is also kind of a strange coincidence because Appalachian in Kentucky, you know, that's the same area. Um, okay, yeah. <laughs> Appalachian Mysteria, Merritt and Karen, uh, WVU Coed Murders, where you were asked to help decipher a copper plate containing what was assumed to be uh, Coptic language. And this copper plate was thought to be connected in some way to this case. And I thought this was a fascinating story. I listened to the podcast, (laughs) uh, but I'd like you to tell us more about your involvement in this, in this podcast episode, if you would. Yes, I'll I'll try to, I'll try to tell you what I remember of it. So um, I should say that it's a fantastic podcast, um, the Coed Murders. If you if you if you like podcasts and you're interested in these true crimes, I, to be honest, I'm not a big fan of true crime, um, but I listened to the whole podcast and I loved it. Um, so that's my sales pitch for it. Um, so it's called Married and Karen WV Coed Murders. It's basically about um, a couple of girls called Married and Karen who disappeared in 1970, um, and then their bodies were found um, in the woods, um, beheaded. Um, so it's quite a horrific case. Um, and one of the things I find the most shocking was not that, uh, I mean, it's, it's still unsolved. Um, one thing I find the most shocking was that it wasn't hard to find possible killers. There were actually too many. There were actually too many people who were committing various kinds of violence and um, and kidnappings and um, killings, near killings against women in the time. Is that, it, it, so if you listen to the podcast, it's one of the really shocking things is how violent um, it was um, at that time, um, how dangerous it was. Um, but I actually got um, contacted by one of um, the producers. Um, when was it now? Maybe three years ago. It was pre-pandemic. <laughs> so I guess probably would have been 2019. Um, so she had contacted me because there was um, this copper plate that you mentioned, which was associated with the case. It wasn't at the time that she contacted me, the, the relationship wasn't completely certain um, if you listen to their podcast, um, you can get a sense of kind of how they gradually under, come to understand it better. Mm-hmm. It was actually found, they, at first they thought it was found in the woods nearby. Um, and there had been a rumor. Um, I mean, it's a very interesting case, so you should listen to it. But <laughs> yes. There's a, there's a, there's a psychic church, basically, that had said that they had, re- they had received a revelation that Satanists were involved in this murder. This kind of because I mean the beheading is quite strange. It, it seems kind of ritualistic, mm. um, and so there's this idea that Satanists or witches might be involved, um, and so this plate kind of became part of the investigation. And when they'd contacted me, they thought it had been found in the woods. It actually showed found uh, it actually turned out later on that it hadn't been found in the woods at all. It actually um, belonged to a girl who was around the same age as the woman who were murdered. Um, I think it had been her private possession, um, but her father had found it and perhaps contacted the local police because there was this satanic angle on the murders, um, which is never proven, but it was an angle that was in the minds of people at the time. He contacted the police who contacted the FBI. They examined the plate. They decided that um, it wasn't really connected, um, but it had, been, it had been logged as a piece of evidence in the case. And so that's how the podcast producers um, encountered it. Um, 
you can see a picture of it if you go to their website. Um, mm -hmm. Part of it's actually blacked out for reasons which I'll um, I'll explain in a moment. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they thought it was written in Coptic or Greek. Um, an FBI person who, I don't know, looking at it, I got the impression maybe he'd done a semester of Greek or something like that, <laughs> um, tried, to, tried to read it and he said it was something about opera. Oh, the other things. I think he, he thought, thought he saw the word Coptic in it and he thought he thought of the word opera, but he wasn't really sure what it was. Um, so um, the producer, um, Sarah James McLaughlin, got in contact with me because she thought it was something to do with Coptic magic. She actually recognized there's actually a satyr square on it. Um, so there's a satyr square in the middle of it, um, kind of backwards, um, which um, in the materialized study wouldn't be very significant. Um, but in modern occultism, I think there's more attention to these kinds of small details that so may have been significant to the person who produced it. Um, I imagine your listeners probably know what satyr square is, or should I? Probably just give a brief description of it for those who might not uh, know. I actually have a little one here that oh. the producer producer gave to me. It's very oh, nice. Oh, nice. Yes. There you are. <laughs> um, so basically it contains a series of words which are maybe from Latin whose name whose meaning is not really well known. Um, Sator, Ripotenet, Opera Rotus. And what's interesting about this is that you can read it in multiple directions and it reads exactly the same way. Um, and of course, this this is kind of referenced in the film Tenet, right? So the name is the middle bit, Tenet, which yeah. can be read yeah. and forwards. And then various characters have their names. Uh, well, actually, all of these appear in some way. So I take, it begins in an opera, for example. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so where was I? So she, she recognized it was a satyr square. So she recognized it as a magic square. Um, the FBI didn't <laughs> apparently notice the satyr square, but I guess they didn't have the internet. So maybe things were a bit more complicated back then um, doing research. Um, so she Googled uh, Coptic and she Googled magic and she came across my website and she contacted me. Um, and I was on holiday at the time, so I wasn't supposed to be working. Uh, but I always find these things, you know, really fascinating. And so I kind of had a look at it and I was like, what on earth is this thing? You know, it, it didn't look like any kind of magical object that we typically get in materialized study. Um, when I tried to read it as Coptic, I mean, the satyr score is obvious, but the rest of it I couldn't read. I couldn't figure out what it was supposed to say. Um, I tried reading his Greek, I tried reading it as Coptic, and it didn't really make any sense. Um, and so I basically emailed her back and said, oh, I'll maybe think about it and try to figure it out. You know, it looks a bit like a curse tablet, so it's, a, it's written on metal. Um, I think I originally said, well, it's written on copper. Copper is a metal of, um, of Venus, maybe something to do with love or, you know, but who knows, you know. Um, but I, I was kind of just continuing to stare at it every now and then, and I realized that it wasn't, it, it wasn't Coptic or Greek. There's a Coptic alphabet, but it's actually just um, English, um, but written by somebody who obviously had like some kind of how to write your name in Coptic type thing. Um, perhaps a little digression. So I later discovered, um, I contacted my colleague Egil Asperum to, to ask about this and actually contacted some people who are in the um, uh, modern um, uh, o, uh, OTO um, to help me as well. Um, so the use of Coptic actually is something that, that we find in the Golden Dawn. Um, so Coptic was the most accessible form of the Egyptian language in the 19th century. Um, it was very hard to learn hieroglyphs because you know, they, don't, they only recently been deciphered. Um, but MacGregor Mathers, for example, claimed to be able to read Coptic um, because you know Coptic was a language that had continuously been spoken and so it was easier to learn. Um, and so within the OTO, um, there are parts of the ritual, I think, where you do have to write things in Coptic and you have to learn Coptic and you have to say words which are supposedly in Coptic. Um, although to be honest, when I looked at them, it didn't really, it was clear they didn't really know what they were doing. Um, but uh, so, so the person who created this, I actually don't know how they, um, 
how, how, which particular alphabetic um, key they used. I spent a bit of time trying to find ones that might have been available to them. Um, I couldn't find any. The reason I say this is some very specific choices, which are interesting. I think they're actually quite good choices if you're writing English, but they're not the kind of choices that you would necessarily make um, without being guided. Um, so, for example, there's the sound ch in choose. Um, if you are kind of thinking about it in English, you write C and H, right? Mm-hmm. But that's something you only really do in English and a few other modern languages. Um, there's actually a Coptic sound, which is ch, but it's a separate letter. And so whoever wrote this knew that. Um, so it's quite it's quite clever. And um, apparently there were a, a range of alphabets circulating within, for example, um, the OTO, the Ordo Templar Orientalis. Um, but um, the, one, the published ones I looked at didn't correspond to it. So it's a bit of a mystery to me how this person learned to write in Coptic. So the first thing I noticed was that actually there was a name written at the very top. Um, so it's a, a woman's name. And that was the very first thing I read. Um, so in the podcast, to protect this woman's identity, we called her Debbie. So basically I read Debbie's name. It has her first name, her middle name, and her last name. Uh, so I was very proud of myself when I discovered that. And I emailed the producer straight away to tell her. Um, the next part further down was a bit weirder. It had the word Lipra or Lirpa, sorry, Lirpa in um written in Coptic or Greek. It's basically the same letters for Lipra. And I didn't really know what it meant, but I noticed there were some um, there were some little squiggles, like lines and squiggles. Um, and a few years ago, I'd been in a class where we were reading Greek papyri. And one of my colleagues, who's brilliant, her name is Agnes Mihaly, when she studies the Greek litur- liturgy, she'd pointed out that if you counted them, it actually corresponded to things which were being talked about in the, in the text. So it was actually it was a document talking about selling various kinds of clothing. And she pointed out there were little squiggles at the bottom that corresponded to the numbers of articles of clothing being, being mentioned. Um, so kind of inspired by that, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to count these different squiggles. And I realized it actually gave a date um, from memory in the 1950s. So if you put together, if you put them together as numerals, um, each of the different types of squiggle, it produced a, sequ- a sequence. I later realized there were attempts to write ancient Egyptian nu- numerals. Um, so not the numerals that you would use in, with Coptic, um, but whoever, once again, whoever uses obviously had um, access to like how to write numbers in hieroglyphs and had tried to write the, the number in hieroglyphs. And then that made me realize that Lipra, if you read it, or Lirpa, if you read it backwards, is April. Um, so it gave a mm. it gave a year, it gave a date, and even gave because the time it actually has AM in it. I originally read it as Ma because it's backwards, but if you read it, if you flip it, flip it, it says AM. So I sent this to um, uh, Sarah McLaughlin, the, um, the the editor of the podcast, and she was actually able to track um, this woman down based on that information, um, and uh, got in contact with her. Um, so the last part of it. Well, actually, not quite the last part. So if you go further down um, in the document, um, at the very bottom of it, there's a, a phrase. And once again, it took me a very long time to read. All I had access to was a photocopy made in, I guess, the 1970s. Mm-hmm. So I had a scan of a photocopy. So it's really, and this is not, you know, a nicely written document. It's scratchings on a, on a bronze plate. Right, right. Um, uh, but in, eventually, um, I realized that it said uh, freedom. I mean, I'll just make sure I get this right. Once again, it was written backwards, and it had these kind of surprising choices. Um, surprising choices and occasionally little spelling mistakes um, so freedom to choose personal code of life and happiness so this is what it says so it's kind of a slightly surprising um, kind of you know self-affirmation um, I suppose you could say at yeah. the bottom uh, so what and there are various other symbols so one of the things that um, the producer and I did is we were kind of discussing it back and forth before we got in contact with the woman and we were like okay well there's a there's a Taurus sign um, there's a Venus sign, there's a six-pointed star. 
Um, I think I figured that the woman would have been um, a Taurus um, from the date. And so I guess this is why there's a Taurus sign. Um, she's a woman, so I guess there's a Venus sign. Um, there's a Rotus cross, um, which is not something you really find in ancient documents or a Rota cross, but I think it's mentioned in medieval magic. Um, then there were a series of other symbols, which, um, I mean, once again, your, your listeners can look at the document for themselves. Um, I didn't know what they were. Um, the producer um, was kind of, you know, asking me about it and being like, oh, maybe we could look it up. And I was, I mean, I was very skeptical. In, in ancient documents, we have so many, what we call characters. Once again, there's examples behind you, behind me. And what we usually say is they don't mean anything. They're just symbols that people make up on the spot um, uh, for whatever meaning they get, they, they choose to give them. Um, but, um, you know, I do ha I have a little collection of kind of modern occult books. And so I was looking through them. I didn't find anything similar, but there was a dictionary of symbols I had. And so I sent that to her. It's a huge book. It's something like, I don't know, 400 pages. So I sent that, I sent a PDF of that to her and I was like, oh, you look through it, um, you know, <laughs> expecting that she would find nothing. Um, but she actually managed to identify it. So it's actually the sign of Mephistopheles. Um, and we managed to track this down to a specific um, uh, early modern codex, which was published um, it's one of the early codices to be published in a printed copy um, in German, in very difficult to read black letter text. Um, but basically, it's a, it's a symbol which is supposed to be the name of Mephistopheles. And so this was something, because it was published early, once again, it was then uh, passed on through various, um, I guess, occult sources until it finds its way to this dictionary. So once again, the person who wrote this had access to um, you know, a Coptic key, an Egyptian numer numeral writing key, um, and also, I guess, something which gave the name of Mephistopheles as a character. Um, so eventually, um, uh, the, um, the producer was able to contact um, the woman who we're calling Debbie. Um, and it turned out that there was a guy who worked in the local kind of occult bookstore, a little bit older than her, kind of a bit of a, bit of a weirdo in the community, um, who had produced it for her. Um, saying that it said her future or something like that. So he kind of produced it for her as kind of like, um, apparently she had quite a controlling father and she felt like she didn't have much self-control. So I think he kind of created it for her as a little talisman. Um, but she never really, really knew what it said. Um, and I suppose especially when, you know, the police and the FBI came to her house to ask, ask about it, she probably had a very negative, um, negative memory of it. Um, so yeah, that was the story. So I mean, ultimately we discovered through talking to Debbie that it didn't really have anything directly to do with the case. She was almost the same age as them, and she rem I think she remembered vaguely it happening, that these murders happening. Um, but yeah, I mean, to me, it was kind of fascinating. And I mean, I would like to maybe do a bit of work on this because it's a really interesting example of the way in which, um, you know, Coptic is just a language, and the ancient Egyptian is just a language, you know. Um, and nowadays, Coptic is most often used within the Orthodox, the Egyptian Orthodox Church. Um, but for whatever reason, I guess because of our Western ideas about Egypt and specifically because of the Golden Dawn's reception of Egypt, Coptic is now thought of as a kind of magical language or a magical script. Uh -huh. um, and so the person who produced this document with all of these strange signs on it and, you know, decided to, to use Coptic, you know, it's almost, it's a, it's a bit strange, you know, it's like saying to write something in Japanese or something like that, you know, right. it's just a, it's just a choice. It's just a different language. You're not really saying anything yeah. different. Yeah. Script, rather. you're not really saying anything different, but it has this, it's these associations, which I find quite interesting. And I mean, I, of course, I study Coptic magic. So <laughs> I guess to me, Coptic is a kind of magic language, but most people study Coptic, you know, they study letters or they study um, accounts or they study yeah. religious texts. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 
But anyway, uh, that was yeah, that was story. very. I I really uh, suggest that everyone uh, go listen to that podcast, uh, especially the episode that you're featured in that explains this uh, this story. Uh, 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 also about the man who made the the copper plate and yeah, yeah. how you know he kind of was a self taught uh, esotericist, I guess you could call it, or occultist. And yeah, so that case, reflects yeah. in the way you see the choices being made in the in the creation yeah. of this of this copper plate. Uh, I just thought it was very very interesting, and also, like I said before, how relevant uh, scholarship actually is for for people. I mean, uh, perhaps maybe a common idea might be that all oh, those people that study all that ancient stuff, you know, what is that really good for, you know, in in everyday life? Well, here you have an example of uh, of of how it can be applied. So, I yeah, I thought that was a, a great story and I I'm thank thank you for sharing uh, for sharing that. Uh, because you added a few extra details that weren't in the podcast, so I oh, like okay. that. I, <laughs> like that. I actually hate—I I hate listening to my own voice. I didn't listen to that episode, but I can say the other episodes are fantastic, and they have really good guests on the other episodes. <laughs> yes, well, uh, I'm a, a podcaster myself, and I love uh, listening to other podcasts too. Oh, okay, uh, and, and true crime is one of those uh, areas where I do kind of yeah, fall yeah. down the rabbit hole sometimes. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so well, one, one other thing—a little thing that's interesting, I guess—is a lot of. Throughout a lot of this interview, I've been kind of stressing um, the way the reception is conditioned by, um, you know, what's available, right? So the way in which, yeah. um, like the Golden Dawn's reception and then more modern reception has been um, conditioned by scholarly production. Um, but what's quite interesting in this case is that it kind of goes against my instinct. So I always try to like find where something comes from. But in this case, I couldn't do that. You know, I've never, this, this object seems to really be unique. His use of the Coptic script seems to be unique. Um, and so that's a really interesting case of it seemed like somebody really, I mean, maybe there were things available to him that I just don't know about. Maybe we could track down like a, a book that was available in the 60s and yeah. um, in West Virginia, which told you how to make an object like this. But it does really seem, the more I've looked into it, that he just kind of, you know, thought this is what a magic plate tablet should look like <laughs> and this is how I'm going to do it. Um, which to me is interesting because so often I'm looking at how things are, are transmitted and copied. Yes, um, exactly. How this is... Uh... You know, a lot of uh, occultists might, you know, be making their own decisions on 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 the basis of you know what they've learned themselves, yeah, but yeah. might not be uh, in the same trend or in the same vein as as another occultist might. So yeah. they're making their own uh, decisions at that point as to how they create their own magical objects. So yeah. very yeah, very interesting stuff. <laughs> Right now, I can imagine that that was probably coming out of left field for you. But yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, interesting. If you if you do uh, uh, look into that further to see, you know, to do your little detective work, uh, I'd love to hear about it. If you'd send me an email about uh, about it, so I yeah, can uh, I read about that, I would be re- really appreciate that. In closing, I'd like to mention your own endeavor. Uh, the Coptic Magical Papyri podcast. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this project and uh, your goals with it? Uh, yeah, so um, the Coptic Magical Papyri project is kind of the larger project which I run. Um, our goal was, first of all, to kind of produce a catalogue of all the Coptic magical texts, um, which we could. Um, the Coptic magical texts are a lot less well-studied and a lot less well-known than the Greek and even Demotic ones. 
Um, so we kind of produced, uh, first of all, an online database of all of the ones which we're able to find. And now we're working on translations, which we're making publicly available um, on our website, and which we're also hoping to, um, uh, to print um, in, as a physical copy um, within the next year or so. Um, uh, and part of this project, uh, so we have a blog, which is a little bit less active now that we're focusing more on translation. We have a blog where you can get more information about this kind of thing. Uh, but we also have a podcast, and I can't really take credit for that. Uh, it's really the work of um, uh, Marketa Preininger, who's one of the, um, the team members. Um, but from very early on, she was very interested in um, kind of using a blog, sorry, using a podcast um, as, a, as a way of public outreach. Um, and so the way it works is really a series of interviews with scholars, so um, really leading scholars um, on, on, a, on various topics to do with ancient magic, um, so we have people talking about, uh, some people I've mentioned, so we have Agnes Mihaliko talking about um, the liturgy and magic. Um, we have, um, I think Sebastian Richter talks about ancient alchemy and magic. Um, we have a podcast coming up um, with um, uh, Joseph Sanzo, where he talks about ancient Jewish and Christian magic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if any of your listeners are interested in um, uh, hearing what these scholars have to say, um, I think uh, hopefully they might enjoy it. Um, and, um, you know, we're always interested in hearing suggestions for, you know, other kinds of topics um, they might like to hear about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as you say, like, um, I guess scholarly work is often, it seems a little bit um, abstract and uh, very separated from the real world. Um, but I think um, at least what I, I find what we study very interesting. Um, and so our goal with the podcast is really to try to share this interesting, what we think is interesting material um, with, with the wider public. Excellent. And yes, I, I will include uh, the link to, uh, to the podcast so people can go listen to it. I think it would be a good idea with the, uh, the knowledge of what we talked about before that magic is the topic itself of magic is not an easy uh, mm. It's not an easy concept to even define. Uh, like I said, it's not a cut and dry thing that you can say one thing about it. No, it is a very complex uh, subject that have many, many different uh, different viewpoints. I guess you could say. So that's yeah, excellent place to to hear all of those different opinions being shared. So. Well, Korshi, it was a pleasure to talk with you today and learn more about your area of specialty. Yeah, thank you very much, Stephanie. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking time out of your day to share this uh, with me, all of this with me. Thank you to the viewers and the listeners out there. And please check out that description box for the, the links and the resources. Check out the podcast. I really recommend them. Okay, that's it for now. See you next time. Bye-bye.